Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is one of four podcast series produced at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And if you've considered getting a degree in public policy, then you might want to come and study with us. You can find out more about our courses and degree programs at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And make sure you check out our other pods as well. We produce Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny on politics and public affairs, the National Security Podcast on Australia and the region's security challenge and Ask Policy Forum, the podcast where you get to ask the questions. They're all available on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favourite shows. Before we get started with this week's episode, I'd like to extend a personal invitation to you to our second ever live pod. Together with ANU Learning Communities, we are presenting Australia Ablaze What Next on Tuesday 24th March from 5.30pm. For a fresh perspective on the lessons we must learn from Australia's bushfire crisis, we're hosting an expert panel to look at the challenges facing Australia's economy, its health sector and biodiversity. Join us at the Australian National University. Bring a friend, bring your questions. We'll be putting them to the panel right on the spot using a special platform to collect your questions online. So listeners, please don't forget to register and secure your seat. You can sign up at policyforum.net forward slash events. Now, discussions about climate change and the costs of action have become inseparable. Some fear that more proactive climate policies will hit Australia's economy with jobs in the natural resource sector coming under threat, coal exports becoming less profitable over time and electricity prices rising. In an interview for the ABC's Insiders program, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that the government was going to reduce emissions, but they're going to do it without a carbon tax, without putting up electricity prices and without shutting down traditional industries upon which regional Australians depend for their very livelihood. But this is only one side of the story. What about the costs that would be associated with not taking action? Just this week, Scott Morrison acknowledged that there are costs associated with climate change, but then refused to elaborate on what global heating would precisely do to economic growth and job creation in the country. Research by the Climate Council and the University of Melbourne has put a dollar figure on the economic costs of climate change. According to their modelling, the cost of inaction could be 20 times larger than the cost of acting. Further research from the Climate Council has found that global warming posed major economic risks, specifically to Australia's property and agricultural sectors, if greenhouse gas emissions don't decline to net zero by 2050. So today we want to ask... 
What are the costs of inaction on climate change and why are they not discussed more often and more openly? And we've got a stellar panel of experts to pick over this question and more today. First up is Dr. Anna Greta Hunter. She's a cardiologist and a clinical senior lecturer at the ANU Medical School. Hello, Anna Greta. Hi, thank, thanks for having me. Next is uh, Dr. Imrad Ahmad. He's a climate scientist and an associate professor at the ANU Fenner School. Hello, Imran. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. And last but certainly not least is Professor Quentin Grafton. He is a professor of economics here at Crawford School. He's also the editor-in-chief of Policy Forum. Hello, Quentin. Hello, Martin. Good to be here. So Australia's government is often quick to point out the potential costs associated with action on climate change, from job losses to higher electricity prices. But there are also massive costs associated with not achieving the Paris Agreement emissions reduction targets, such as productivity loss and uh, across agricultural and property sectors. Quentin, you've done some work on this with Tom Compass. So are you able to put a dollar figure on the cost of inaction for us? We can put a dollar figure on it. It depends on the time period you're looking forward to, to 2030, 2050, or 2100. It depends whether it's global or whether it's national here in Australia. And it also depends on the scenario you're con- coming up with. So well, what the reduction is, is business as usual vis-a-vis doing more. And the bottom line is, and I can give you numbers that will just bore your <laughs> bore the listeners, but but it's multiples more in terms of the costs of uh, inaction relative to the cost of uh, mitigation. So the bottom line is, it's a no-brainer to actually do something now and into the future to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's true not only for Australians; it's true globally. And if we don't do this in a collective way, i.e. the entire world collectively reduces its greenhouse gas emissions, then we are going to end up with catastrophic climate change. And when I mean catastrophic, I mean catastrophic. So the 12 million or so Australians who experienced indirectly or directly the bushfires of 2019 and 2020 understand what I mean when I talk about catastrophic uh, climate change, as do many others in the world who are experiencing it in other ways. So catastrophic climate change means that our ordinary way of life is fundamentally transformed. We don't go to the beach, for example, in the summer. We don't have houses that will actually where we'd want them to be. We can't even do the basic sorts of things that we'd expect we'd be able to do, walk outside and actually breathe the air. That's what I mean by catastrophic climate change. And for the poor and vulnerable, well, <laughs> they're basically left by the wayside to, 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 to manage as best as they can. So those are the, that's just giving you a, a, an inkling or a sense of where we're heading at the moment. So the point about it is we must do something in Australia and globally. The costs of not doing something are many multiples more than the cost of acting. So let's do it. Let's get around to doing it. And let's do it here and let's do it globally. I mean, in the intro there, I talked about the costs being 20 times more than uh, than the alternative. Just humor me. Is there a dollar figure that we can put on the costs of inaction? Yes, we can. We can. We can do some calculations to 2100, and that uh, comes to a number which is exceedingly large, you know, over 400 trillion, trillion US dollars. That's bigger than the, the, the current uh, global GDP at 2100, and that's a cumulative number. We can look at numbers here in Australia. So the cost of, cost of doing something is going to cost 
it's going to cost. It'll cost some billions. But the cost of not doing something, you know, is well over, you know, well over in the many, many hundreds of billions. It's much, much less than that in terms of doing something. So those are the sorts of numbers. They, it's hard to sort of get your numbers, your head around all those numbers. We have an economy that, depending how you want to, to measure it, you know, approaching your $2 trillion. So we're talking about very large sums of money. Just think about it in terms of the ordinary sort of Australian in terms of the dollars in their pockets. This is a big sum of money. You know, so the people who've lost their jobs, who are underemployed, they've found that their houses are worthless, uh, uh, those sorts of things that we've experienced the last few months, well, the impact on them is, is you know, their entire <laughs> annual income. But but for many Australians, there's been various costs, thousands of dollars. That's the sort of thing we're talking about, thousands of dollars per year for each household in Australia. That's the sums of money that we're talking about. So, the, I, yeah, I think we really should be starting to reflect on the summer that we've just had. And I, I was struck by some of the commentary that was in um, in Nature Climate Change in the last week or so that was suggesting that the summer we've had this year uh, becomes a normal summer by 2040 and becomes a coolish summer by 2060. And so I think when we're looking towards future projections, one of the things that many of us struggle to get our head around is the imagination that we need to, to to see how bad it might get if we don't do things. And so uh, I think we've, I'm hoping we've all learned, um, I know we've all been deeply affected by the summer we've experienced, but I would be hoping we learn and take that on board as a really readily appreciable and understandable uh, way to appreciate the risks of inaction. Um, if this becomes a form of normal and particularly if this the summer that we've experienced goes on to become more, uh, more intense, particularly with heat, habitability, livability, our life expectancy will start to change because of climate change. And so our productivity, we know with increasing temperatures, productivity goes down and that's across all forms of workforce. So it's particularly obvious in people working outside, but even in indoor and office jobs where our concentration and, and such is affected significantly by high overnight temperatures and hot temperatures during the day. If that becomes a normal variation so that our three or four months of our summer period become difficult to work in. Our overall economic productivity will not be maintainable. Our, our, um, the world that we live in will change significantly. And so I, I, you know, I agree completely with the arguments that are being made that the cost of inaction can't be estimated just in a dollar term because the cost of inaction are also seen through our health and well-being, through our relationships, through the natural environment in which we live and are, are catastrophic. I think the fundamental question uh, is the narrative. And I think the narrative here, particularly in Australia, is entirely wrong, where climate change action is looked at as a cost. It is an investment. We have experienced drought. We have experienced uh, other extreme weather events. And people quickly, uh, people have a short memory and they quickly forget, uh, forget that these events are happening and they are having a repercussion on their daily life. Now, if you look at Australia, it, it, in terms of G20, it has wide, it has large amount of resources, but in some ways it has uh, sort of a structure of both developed country, uh, a developed country and a developing country. It's heavily impacted by climate change. So while we have the resources um, in, G, in, uh, in, in terms of our, our sort of our, our structure in G20, we are heavily impacted compared to other G20 countries. We're so the, the, the most the, climate vulnerable developed are, yes, nation. Yeah, and most, we should remember that. We, and and, and one of the, you talked about, uh, uh, particularly about Paris Agreement. Now, remember that Paris Agreement 
is was the second best kind of the second best solution that we arrived at. And even that, countries like Australia and US are sort of running. US are already out. Australia is is kind of doing the same in different ways. So I think I think and that agreement was a, a universal agreement where countries agreed to increase their climate ambitions. And if Australia continues on its path currently, and all the countries globally take Australia's approach, we're looking at three to four degree temperature rise. And that is going to cook the planet and that is going to uh, create an environment which is un- unhealthy. So I think I think the cost of uninhabitable, un- uninhabitable. Sorry. sorry, that's that's a better word for that. Um, so so I think the cost of inaction, I think, uh, as, be, as has been explained, I totally agree with Quinton that uh, you know we we are, we need to talk about those costs and look at climate change as an investment into the future because the jobs that we're talking about in 20 years down the road, these jobs are not going to be there. Why is it that we're not hearing as much about the costs of inaction in the sort of public discussion around climate change? I think uh, they're driven by vested selfish interest, political interest. It is, uh, it is, I think if you look at the political space it's, itself, it, it is, uh, it is driven by self-interest and, not, and parties, even though uh, we heard uh, the Labour's uh, policy yesterday in terms of announcing a 2050 carbon neutrality, um, uh, net zero goal. I think some scientists have come forward and said, okay, that's, that's, that's too little, too late. I mean, that it, however, the uh, the the media, uh, particularly in terms of the Murdoch media, is is very much sort of filtering. Then the coal lobby uh, is very much filtering um, uh, the air with fake news and with uh, with interest in terms of um, taking uh, the coal and fossil fuel interest uh, forward, which uh, again is no longer in the longer term in long term interest of Australia. I would add to that too, but there's uncertainty, of course, about what those costs are. We can't precisely say by 2050 that this is going to be in a precise way in terms of uh, uh, worker productivity. Uh, yet at the same time, you'll have a prime minister or a president talking, well, the cost is going to be 50,000 jobs or whatever the thing is. So they, they give a precise certain number, which by the way itself is uncertain, but they give the pre, the impression it's a precise number. And then they go on and say, well, we just don't know what has, you know, the point is, we don't need to have a precise number. So be clear about this. We don't need a precise number because the difference, the magnitude difference between the costs of inaction and the costs of doing something are so huge. You mentioned the 20 times greater. I mean, the work that I've done with, with Tom Compass, we, we get numbers of seven, six, seven, or eight, you know, depending on the scenario, it could be more. That, you, even if there's uncertainty, <laughs> we know it's much, much, much cheaper for us to do something now rather than to wait. But I think the point that has to be raised when we talk about costs is who's bearing the cost, okay, of inaction and who would be bearing the cost of action. Now, of course, the cost of action means that all of us have to in some way. We're producers, consumers, households. We'll have to pay in some way or other. They don't get around it. There's no, there's no free lunch, so to speak. But, of course, there are big players in Australia and globally who will suffer quite dramatically in the context of the period of time as we start to have, and we have to have a carbon price. However that's set up, it has to be an explicit carbon price. So any prime minister, president, or king or queen, whoever those people are, who says they can't have a carbon tax to be able to 
bring about the change we need, then they're not serious. They're not serious. We have to have an explicit. And the reason why the carbon price, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the carbon price has to be up for discussion again. No other model makes sense like that because the carbon price gives you an appropriate signal as to the density of carbon that goes into the activity that you're enjoying. And then, and so whether or not we need to be carbon neutral or whether we can achieve carbon neutrality in whatever time frame really depends on how much we can modify our behaviour around our carbon consumption. Um, I've, I play this game with friends and I've tried it out a few times of imagining if you turn the tap off, you wake up tomorrow morning and there's no longer any fossil fuel burned. And it's quite an interesting game to play because you go through not being able to use a car. Obviously in Canberra, we can still turn the lights on because we're 100% renewable. Uh, but then you look at issues around trade and consumption and it becomes quite an interesting uh, mind uh, tool. You can, you, can, you can go down that pathway by putting a price on carbon, by beginning to understand that the coffee that you drink in the morning, in fact, was, was, uh, has a carbon price associated with it because of the, the transportation that's involved with it. And it's not that we can't drink coffee because that would be terrible, uh, but that maybe the price that we spend on, on, our, on our commodities particularly should be reflective of the carbon price because uh, that will be part of how we change behaviour. And we need to do that very, very quickly. I mean, I think the bit that's missing from a lot of these conversations is the the, the tremendous um, uh, downsides of inaction. Uh, we 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 seem to skirt around the edge, and I'm going to skirt around the edge of um, of livability and of habitability and of people dying. Um, and so, climate scientists report this, and uh, doctors probably are much less good at actually describing this. It's it's difficult territory, but you you read analyses that suggest that by 2100, if we've achieved a three or four degree increase in global temperature, um, that the habitable population of the world will be one billion people. That's a significant reduction in our global population over a short period of time. That's our lifetime of the people in this room. Um, and that means that there's a significant amount of suffering and, and death that will take place because of the habitability issues. That stuff is really difficult territory. It's difficult territory for all of us to go into when we're thinking about these issues. And I think that's where the politics starts to fail is because these are really complex discussions. This is much, much, much dif more difficult than talking about franking credits. Um, uh, we, we don't do this well uh, as a community. And so part of our job as academics is to discuss that, to, to make it easier for people to have those discussions. Uh, I think on a population basis. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that they, where we have evidence is particularly uh, decoupling happens with economic gain. And this has happened with a carbon price in Australia when we had a carbon price. And uh, you can see that globally as well. In, in terms of uh, costs of inaction, I think the Climate Council report is, is, is fa fairly recent and, and uh, talks in detail about um, uh, the effects on on agriculture and um, and and um, the coastal environment, and there's a huge insurance cost to everyday sort of uh, everyday Australian uh, in their da daily life. Um, so I think uh, the cost of inaction. I think it's it's important to sort of, um, and I'm glad you, uh, Crawford has uh, sort of raised a podcast on this topic. It's uh, we need to talk about this, and and I would agree. With my colleague, that we need to uh, we need to talk to communities because I think the problem is that uh, there is not enough information uh, that is digested, absorbed, and reflected. Because when we talk about transition here, uh, the people in coal communities means job to no job. That's what they understood. That, that's what they, that's what they understand by transition. Uh, they don't understand that in twenty years' time there will be no job. They they think it's 
the next day they'll be out of job. So I think we we have a sort of tendency. I mean, Canberra is sort of a very sort of nice environment, and then the people are more aware. But I think we need to get this conversation out in in Townsville, get get this conversation out in Hunters Valley, where and and try to sort of relate some of these issues in simple messages that people can understand. So I said this on the other podcast uh, a week or two back, but uh, it's not just about coal and looking at the the, um, the fossil fuel industries in regional uh, parts of Australia. It's talking about agricultural viability as well and, and large parts of regional and rural Australia, and I spend time working and I've lived, lived in uh, regional Australia, the, those communities are also vulnerable, that with increasing temperatures, we see agricultural viability change significantly. And so so those transition discussions are bigger than just talking to fossil fuel dependent yeah. communities. We, we need to be talking to communities about increasing temperatures and changes to weather patterns, which will have an impact on day-to-day activity across large parts of Australia. Um, some of the climate science that gets my attention as a cardiologist or as a doctor is looking at regional temperature variation. And there are parts of Australia which where the temperatures are much going to be much hotter than other parts. So down south might be a better place to be than in the centre or up north. Um, and so those questions are, and discussions around habitability and livability, can you live in this area as the temperature rise? Can you work in this area as the temperature rise? Those conversations are, are bigger than just simply asking uh, coal-dependent towns to transition. I think it, I want to follow up on that too. So one of the things we haven't mentioned is water. Yep. Uh, Australia yep. is going to get drier in yep. particular parts where most Australians live. And uh, already we have communities that have water Water being trucked in to them because of the drought. The drought, by the way, is not over. Everybody, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's still it, but, still yeah. ongoing. So th- that's the sort of thing that we're talking about: the cost to communities in the context mm-hmm. of small communities, rural communities that are suffering right now as a direct relation to drier and hotter weather. But I also want to stress something here, and I think it's really important to highlight this. So when a prime minister, president, or whoever talks about, well, we can't have a carbon tax, just think about it. There is already a tax. We are already taxed in the context of our future. Okay. So who's paying for that? Well, we're paying for it, and our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are paying for it. So that's the tax that we're paying. And we're already paying thousands of dollars. (laughs) So just think through the listeners here in Australia, how much you spent over the last few months dealing with the bushfires, okay? Some people spent more than others, but it's non, non-trivial. non $100 billion probably for the economy as a whole. That's a tax on you right now. So if a prime minister talks about we can't have a carbon tax, just think about your future tax. That's your future that is being taxed. So the people who are generating the carbon emissions, and it includes me, okay, I drive a car, okay, but we all must pay. And those who produce more greenhouse gas emissions need to pay more. (laughs) That's the fairness of it. And the poor and vulnerable in Australia who can't afford to pay that extra amount, then they need to be helped out. Guess what? We had a scheme like that. We had a scheme like that right here in Australia. And that was done away with in 2014. So that's now six years ago. And if we haven't costed the costs of inaction, just think about how much the government spends per year. The government spends approximately $500 billion. So we're talking more than $2 trillion have been spent by the Australian federal government, this coalition government, and yet they haven't costed the cost of inaction. <laughs> I mean, what, what have they been doing the last six or seven years? I mean, so this is the point. There is already a tax. There's already a cost. We're already paying for it. The point is that let's make it fair. The yeah. ones who are generating those costs need to pay more. 
includes me and the poor and vulnerable are be, be looked after. And that's, yep. that's the point. All right. Well, this is a fascinating discussion, but this seems like a good point to take a break. We've certainly identified some of the problems. And when I come back, I want to talk about what some of the solutions to this might look like, and particularly how we get this idea of the cost of inaction more into public discussion. So join us shortly. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, well, welcome back. I'm still here in the studio with Anna Greta and Quentin and Imran, and we're talking again about uh, the costs of inaction on climate change and what we can do about that. And in the first part, we had a look at some of the problems uh, that we've identified in that. And in this part, I want to take a look about how we go about proposing and finding some solutions. Imran, in the first section, you talked about how we have to have a sort of national conversation around transition, particularly for those uh, sort of smaller communities. But Australia has spent the best part of a decade in climate wars where, you know, an argument hasn't been based on science, it's been based on ideology, and it's been based on political views. What possible hope is there of having the type of conversation that we need to have in order to properly factor in the idea of inaction on climate change into uh, into policy outcomes? I'm an optimist, so I, I, I have to take the half-class full approach. And I think the, the issue here is that we uh, and and largely it happens in other countries as well. We we take a reactive approach, a symptoms approach. So we're not action oriented. So we're putting in uh, now. Uh, there there's emergency fund being put in, uh, commissions being formed. Um, um, you know, um, I actually don't even think we need a commission. We have enough research out there to actually go and take action. Uh, so I think in terms of solution and bringing uh, bringing this narrative of cost of inaction in is important. And I think w- what what is really crucial is 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 taking a step back and really in taking uh, incorporating uh, climate change. I mean, this has been said many times in research and and countries that have that are trying to take a more climate resilient approach mainstreaming climate efforts in everything we we that that is in, in terms of your health sector in terms of we've we're very fortunate in Canberra so far at this point in terms of and but this season we got the we were we had the worst air quality in the world i could never imagine that i mean this this is what has happened and we've seen it and this is just 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 put the cost to this, just put the cost of health effects, and I think uh, Anna Greta can explain that much more better. Uh, so I, I think I think in terms of really in terms of changing the narrative, in terms of solution, really taking a more proactive 
uh, approach, uh, not a reactionary approach, which is so far been the case. As the situation arises, take some action, uh, uh, you know, and then the situation sort of is better, and then people forget about it and then move on. I think that that sort of approach will no longer work given the climate. We are now experiencing dangerous climate change in action, and we just saw that. You got uh, over 1 billion animals died, the ecosystem sort of uh, service that has sort of that has been hampered, the losses, financial losses to affected communities. And that has been talked about in, in this podcast as well. So I think I think the narrative has to change the uh, and, and we need to uh, take an action oriented approach, not a reaction based approach. So we've been making we're making these policy discuss- discussions around the economics. Oh, we can't act because it's too expensive or we should act because we'll get some potential economic advantage. I think at its core, climate change actually comes back to life and death, and it comes back to the way in which we live. And those those questions are really confronting. They're they're really difficult to discuss in a policy context. Uh, but the best reason to act on climate change is because we want both our lives now and the lives of those to come after us to be as good as possible. And that's what many of us are working for. So shifting the narrative to to stop thinking about the economic cost or the economic gains, but really thinking about the way in which we live, that's a more sophisticated policy discussion than I think we're used to. So it's it's I think shifting the narrative is really important. Um, in health, you know, we see the consequences of this summer have been profound. I'm arguing that I think everybody who's lived uh, through that bushfire season, 12 million I think is a, a reasonable number. So it's a good half or so of the Australian population have been affected by something over the, the summer period to do with the bushfires. Um, and a good proportion of us will have had some mental health effects. I think it's I see it really commonly in the work that I do clinically. Um, and then we're seeing health effects. And in fact, we don't understand the magnitudes of the health effects that are going to come from this summer. It's changed our exercise routines, it's changed our social relationships, it's changed our economic function. And so the longer-term consequences of summers like this are profound and they will affect health and wellbeing. I think that they will affect our life expectancy, although that's a prediction, not one that I can rely on numbers right now yet. Um, and so the narrative of, of benefit to change is also through health. That the sorts of things that we know will decrease our carbon footprint, you know, active transport, changes to nutrition, changing the way that we interact on a social basis, those things are really good for our health. They're really good for making us feel better. They're good for well-being. They're good for community relationships. Um, and they will add to our quality of life in a really meaningful way. Um, and this is maybe that's where the argument of, of shifting from a, a fiscal argument through to a broader well-being argument might be made quite powerfully when you're wanting to act on climate change. You could argue that in Australia, climate scientists haven't had a great deal of success in cutting through into politics and that being turned into policy. But as you said, Anna Greta, this is a question of life and death. So what about the healthcare sector? What can the healthcare sector do to change the, change the narrative, change the story, change the public debate? Well, look, I think over the last six or 12 months, what we're seeing is that there's an increasing element of the healthcare sector that's engaged on the problem of climate change. Uh, And in the same way that I don't think that we should be focusing on just on energy transition or just on agriculture, the complexity of climate change is thinking not just about your own professional life, but about the broader society in which you live. And doctors and healthcare workers are often trained to think, I think, in that holistic way. And so we're seeing an increasing activation, I think, of the healthcare industry. Uh, There are some of the 
that we've just experienced has taken it from a conceptual risk. We've talked about the potential risks of large populations to be affected by climate change, and now we're seeing it play out well, through hazardous air pollution, through high temperatures, through bushfire smoke exposure, and through the mental health effects. And those things are really resonating, I think, with a large proportion of the healthcare in- industry. I guess I'd like to see more doctors speaking about this and more doctors working in that space. And I think doctors, again, and healthcare workers more broadly are really good at working with communities. And for me, that's part of the solution is once we start to work collectively at a local level, we can we can make significant transitions towards making the world a better place. It sounds very uh, optimistic, but but in fact, really just working as, at a community level to decrease our carbon footprint and improve our overall well-being. So I think the healthcare sector has a big role to play. Around the world, Quentin, we're seeing countries taking their commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement very seriously, including governments on the right side of politics, you know, thinking of Germany, thinking of the UK, but still we're not seeing that kind of change and transition happening in Australia. What's it going to take to shift to that? Well, what it's going to take is a change in how we practice our democracy. And so that's not just about an election. So whatever the, the next election result is, but it's about direct democracy and what do, and represented democracy. So what do I mean by that? Well, most Australians want action on climate change. And that's what the surveys tell us. So why isn't that happening? Well, there's a variety of things that are getting in the way. There are impediments. There are various interests that will stop that from happening because it's going to cost them a lot of money. So just think about the gains that some companies have made for removing the, the carbon price in 2014. You know, we're, we're talking in, in <laughs> over $100 billion that would have been allocated between consumers and producers. So you can see there's a very substantial benefit for some people to delay, delay, and delay. So it requires people to get engaged, just as Anna Greta and Imran were saying. I mean, communities, they need to speak to their MPs. They need to, they need to help hold them accountable in terms of uh, we need to have an integrity commission that actually does and actually has teeth. So we know who ministers are meeting. Okay, how many meetings they had with various people. We need to know that public servants need to be and their advisors to ministers need to be held accountable in the context of what they did and they need to be able to get that information uh, uh, under oath. Uh, we, we need a whole series of information around transparency and accountability. That's the complement to the system that we have at the moment in terms of an election, electoral, uh, the electoral cycle. So I think that's where we've got to focus. And then, of course, economists will come in and I fully concur but Connors will come in and say, and I'm one of them, would say, we need a carbon price. Yes, of course we need a carbon price, but we had a carbon price and we got rid of it in 2014. So why did that happen? Well, that could be just about the nature of the election, but it's also the nature of interest. So, so we need to make sure that we have that represented democracy. And so if Australians care, it's not for me, it's if Australians care about this, then they need to do an act in a way that goes beyond the three-year electoral cycle. And that's how I would, that's the sorts of things that I need to, we need to be talking about is that democratic transition and transformation where everybody has a say in some sense. And it, uh, it requires that, uh, that the overall national interest, the public good, dominates over particular sexual or vested interests. And so you're seeing this, you see this um, at least in part through the seat of Indi in Victoria and the Cathy McGowan and then subsequently Helen Haynes, and you still see that um, that local dem- democratic behaviour is different. I've got a, a place in Beechworth and I spend time there. Um, and so people get together and they talk. They talk about what might be good for their community and that's quite a remarkable model for representative democracy. I think you see similar things happening in the seat of Warringah and certainly, as Ali Stegall reflects, 
reflects on that frequently. So, so this uh, this localization of our federal politics, taking the, the the federal issues back down to the grassroots, to the kitchen table, um, to the hospital, to the local council, to whatever part of, of of civil society or social society might be part of the best way for us to achieve change. Because uh, it struck me recently that we can either impose this as an external thing from above, or we can grow these these the transformative change that's required from below, and that 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 might be a really nice way to do it in a way that's positive, that looks after people, that that relies on uh, ideas of justice and representation. Uh, so I think encouraging this local activism is actually tremendously important as part of our, our best best chance of a success. I, I think the the whole uh, building on this, I think the whole uh, narrative has to be about transformation because we, what we are actually doing is we're transforming. We are, whether we like it or not, we are get, going to get to a carbon neutral future worldwide that is where we are the, the, the transformation is happening it is it is going in that direction for that transformation to happen the role of government is very important in in, in, in enabling private sector activity but i think what is also important and what is forgotten is that businesses for instance and community groups can act on their own without government action as well and you can see that i uh, you know there, there are companies for instance like ikea and others that have that are investing and they're investing because of their economic and social interests they are seeing a wider economic gain and uh, due to the fact that cost of inaction, they see it's 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 having an impact on their business. So I think I think businesses, I think in Australia, need to start sort of moving forward without waiting for the government policy announcement. I think that's happening. That needs to scale up. You know, business Council of Australia, of course, has put its report out about what needs to happen. It's clear about that the, we need to do much more than we're doing, and I think that's a general trend across a range of businesses. And because uh, they recognize the costs of, 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 of inaction uh, for their businesses, for their shareholders, as well as thinking about the global aspects of it. So if you've got a bunch of assets that are going to perhaps be stranded assets or you've got a set of issues where um, you're not going to be in business in the long term, you're going to have to transform your business. And you also want to make sure that you don't have penalties in the context of trade. So let me just make it clear to everyone here, okay, there are penalties coming Australia's way in the context if we don't mm. undertake the necessary actions that we need to do that everyone else would expect us to do, okay? And so there are going to be consequences in the context of trade for Australia. I don't know the nature of them and how, how fast they're coming, but they're definitely coming. So, so that's the gain, the, the business side interest looking at this sort of thing. The tourism industry has been absolutely affected, not just about the bushfires. Of course, we've got the coronavirus 19, but there's a whole set of issues on tourism, agriculture. They recognize there are costs to inaction. And I think that's a, 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 I think that's a fundamental change that wasn't true in 2014. I think uh, there were some businesses there, but that's, it's fundamentally changed since 2014. So that makes me optimistic that the business side of town the high, <laughs> uh, uh, do recognize it and they are talking to government, talking to the prime minister and telling the prime minister what they think. And uh, let's hope that makes a difference. This summer has to be an opportunity for transformative change on a policy basis. There, you know, We have to make sense of the catastrophe and disasters that we've lived through, disasters we've lived through. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it certainly made a big difference in the health industry that people thought about this as a conceptual risk as little as last year. And I had conversations with people heading into this summer where they thought, oh, well, climate change and health, is that really important? Surely there are other things 
things that should be uh, on our radar. Uh, I think we need to reframe and we need to, the, the, the summer we've just experienced gives a strong justification to all elements of public policy being seen through the prism of climate change. When we're looking at our agricultural sector, we need to think about climate change. We need to think about it in terms of the way that we build our cities and the way that we work on our economic consumption models. Um, and that the advantages of this are profound. So this is not a penalty. This is an advantage that will give us the likelihood of survival. It gives us the chance to live in a way that interconnects uh, our relationships in a more fulfilling way. Uh, and I think it's an extraordinary opportunity for really vision, visionary leadership uh, in, this, in the country. Um, and that's the sales pitch that's missing, is the positive spin on, on the extraordinary opportunities for change. Uh, yeah. In, in the energy sector, uh, without a carbon price, solar and wind is, is now cheaper than new coal plants. So I think the transition will happen and we can do it in an orderly fashion or we can l let it be messy. And I think Frank Yotso has also written about this recently. So I, 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 uh, I really think that, you know, we, we need to really rethink the, um, the whole uh, narrative in particular in terms of uh, bringing in costs of inaction, bringing in the investment side of things letting um having businesses taking proactive actions without waiting for government there is a certain policy action that government needs to take but there's there's a lot that businesses can do uh, even without that so i, I think i think we, we need to take a holistic approach we are going to have to draw this conversation to a close it's been fascinating but before i let you go i do want to kind of put you on the spot we've talked about uh, what businesses can do to drive change. We've talked about what community groups can do, what researchers can do, and the kind of leadership that we need to do that. But for people listening to this podcast, what's the single most effective thing that individuals can do to change the conversation so we're thinking about the costs of inaction rather than the costs of action? Perhaps, Quentin, if I start with you. I think it gets back to individual action, and that means people will do things in different ways. Uh, someone who's 85 years old is going to act differently than someone who's 16 years of age, you know, either getting on the street or whatever. But it, it's really about making the call. And the call is we can't continue like this. So I, I as an individual, I as my household, or I as my family, or I as my community, we're going to do this together to let our elected leaders know what change we want and how fast we want it. So that comes in many, many different shapes and sizes. Anna Greta does what she does. Imran does what she, he does. I do whatever I do, okay? So everyone's going to make that call, but they've got to make the call. Don't go into this uh, sleepwalking. It's a time to wake up Australia, do something. Whatever that do is, you're going to have to work it out. But there's lots of choices available. Even just picking up the phone or emailing your MP, even if it's just that, there's lots of things you can do. Or you can join a group or whatever. I don't know. But it's your choice. But your choice is going to make a difference because if everyone makes the right choice that we look to the future, not looking to the past, then we're going to make a better better future for all of us and, and, and the people to come. And, and that's uh, that's where it's got to be. Anna Greta, what's your single piece of advice to uh, listeners of the podcast? I, I agree with everything that Quentin said. I think individual action speaks really loudly. And I think uh, it's part of the mental health solution for many of us who are thinking about this is that action is tremendously uh, important for maintaining uh, the drive. 
I, I've asked asking people to have conversations. I think talking to each other, talking in workplaces, talk, talking with family and friends, those conversations can sometimes be extraordinarily rewarding and sometimes be really very challenging. But those conversations we know is how we start to create change. And so I'd encourage people to be talking to their friends, neighbours and workplaces. Uh, and again, thinking perhaps about the population of people who might be listening to this podcast, for people to take ideas of climate change back into their workplace, should, should this be something that's included in in the work that is being done that you enjoy each day and in the relationships that you've got each day? Is there a way in which your, you know, your research program can begin to take into consideration climate change? And so we normalise the discussion. It should be part of every decision every day. Let's get it in there. Imran, what, are your, what is your one suggestion to make sure that the costs of inaction are sort of front of mind for the listeners? I agree with Quentin and, uh, and Greta. My, my take on this would be that individuals – uh, a need to uh, send people in the parliament that have a better understanding on on climate policy and that can take uh, policy uh, policy decisions at that level and uh, i think in terms of their individual uh, choices it's important i think that uh, their actions i think uh, they support those businesses that are already on this um, environment friendly path and i think that would make a huge impact because the businesses would realize that there's a market out there for our products and things are going to start changing so i think they're they're in a collective way i think what is what is very important for individuals to do things in a more collective way individual actions is important you can you can do you do need to walk the talk but make sure whatever you're doing is has a collective sort of action uh, collective uh, sort of a response because we are talking about a massive transformation and, and, and the scale is so large that we need to push this much harder. This has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you all for sharing your insights, your thoughts and your passion with us. So thank you, Quentin. You're more than welcome, Martin. Th- thank you, Anna Greta. Thank you very much for and having Im- me, on. Imran, well, glad to have you in the studio again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Okay, so listeners, we want to know what you thought of this episode. Please reach out to us. We're on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum. There's Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net, or better yet, join the pod squad. You can meet our podcast community, including other listeners and our presenters on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod. Joining the group is also the golden key to our exclusive Ask Policy Forum podcasts. And in that series, you, our listeners, get to ask all all the questions from serious to seriously funny. But remember, you will only have access to the series if you're part of our Facebook group. So don't forget to join. Do that now if you're not already a member. And if you want to get involved in developing policy that could help Australia better manage fires and address its climate challenges, then you might want to come and study the Master of Climate Change with us at Crawford School. This program will give you the skills to solve complex environmental problems through policy. Check it out at crawford.anu edu.au forward slash study and we have one last request to make before we let you go if you like today's episode or any episode of policy forum pod then please subscribe we're on acast apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcast from and while you're on it we'd also love to hear your feedback so please leave us a review it will really help to get the word out about this podcast we'll be back next week with another policy forum pod but until then from me martin pierce cheerio
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 